and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to a Horse and Hound podcast advertising series. This is the first episode of the Champion Safety Series. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound, and I'm really pleased to introduce my two guests today. Firstly, I have with me rider Sarah Washington. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Pippa great to have you along and we also have here Ben Hanna. Ben is a production engineer at Champion. Hi Ben, welcome to you too. Hello, thanks for having me. Now, as I said, today's episode is the first of a new safety series and we're going to start by talking to Sarah about her personal experiences. Sarah is a rider who has suffered a traumatic brain injury as a result of an accident and has since become a strong campaigner for helmet safety. Sarah, can you start off by telling us what the messages are that you're putting out to other riders? I think, obviously, one of the the big messages really that I want to put out is that when you're on a horse just whatever horse it is whether it's a horse that you've ridden all your life and you trust and is it's completely bomb proof whatever you're doing when you're on them you should just always wear a properly fitted helmet and make sure it's done up because you just never know with horses at the end of the day they're not they're not machines they're, they're animals with a mind of their own so and anything could happen like you could just you could just be sitting on them and or just say walking walking across the yard um, and something could scare them or they could trip over or anything so always definitely wear a helmet and also um, making sure that after any accident as well even if it's not a severe accident like mine obviously um, especially if it involves any impact to your head to make sure that you change your helmet and get a new one because it's just so important to make sure you do have one that's in a good state and is also properly fitted when you first get it as well. Mm. Well, Sarah, let's talk about the story which has led to you putting out these messages. We'll begin by finding out a bit more about you. How old are you and where are you from? So I'm 23 and I'm from Stoke-on-Trent in Staffordshire. And you've been riding all your life. Tell us a little more about your sort of background in equestrianism. Yeah, so I've been riding sort of most of my life, yeah. Um, started off in riding schools, as a lot of people do. Um, and then eventually, like, when I went off to university, um, I started loaning horses. And sort of ever since that, I've mainly loaned. I haven't had my own, mainly because of the difficulties in having time. <laughs> so, yeah, that's sort of, sort of me. And what have you been doing sort of since you were at uni? Um, I've been doing bits and bobs. Um, I've, I used to work at a big hunting yard. I sort of helped with exercising all their horses, helped with sort of upkeep of the yard as well, which was really great. And um, tell us, when did the accident take place? It happened last June. Okay. And can you just describe for us what, what took place on that day? So I was out hacking with one of my really close friends um, and basically we think that my horse spooked at something and something obviously really scared him. He bolted and I ended up getting unseated and sort of dragged as I fell. It was a very narrow pathway so it was just not, it was a bad place for it to happen really and yeah so obviously all the impact was on my head. 
And was this a horse that you knew well, that you were familiar with, that you were riding? Yeah, I'd been loaning him for about six months. So yeah, we were. I was very familiar with him. And when you say that you, you were unseated and dragged, was that because your foot caught in the stirrup? We think that it was a little bit caught, but um, because it was it was a very narrow pathway, so I was almost kind of a bit wedged between him and there was, I think, a bank on one side and sort of a load of trees on another side. So, yeah, I think I was just a bit wedged as well. So had I been in an open space, I think I would have come free. But due to the area, it was just just was the wrong place for it to happen, really. Yeah. And were you knocked unconscious? Yeah, I was. Yeah. And presumably since then, you've been told about what, what happened next. Did the friend who was with you sort of call for help? Yeah, so she called um, for an ambulance and she also called back to her yard as well because um, she'd still got her horse with her at the time. So obviously she was trying to look after me and keep hold of her horse as well, which was difficult for her. Sure. And what had happened to your horse? Had he galloped off? He galloped off. He was obviously so something, whatever had scared him, but scared him so much they carried on and he galloped back to the yard so yeah and what sort of obviously you were knocked out so you weren't conscious of what was happening but um sort of tell us the story what did happen next the ambulance came and took you to hospital yeah so um they sent us an air ambulance and just a normal land ambulance as well um and once they got to us they sedated me um and put me in an induced coma and then I went to hospital in the land ambulance because I was pretty, we were pretty close to the, the hospital, so it was easier to do that. And what hospital were you taken to? I went to Royal Stoke. What was, what was the diagnosis and what happened when you arrived there? So when I got there, uh, they, they basically just took me straight to be scanned, I think, and they quickly realised from the scan that um, I'd got quite severe bleeding and bruising on my brain so from then they had to insert one of it was called an icp bolt in my head to sort of measure the pressure like monitor it and um because i think they were worried that if the pressures got really high then that was gonna cause more damage so yeah they monitored that and from there i was basically taken to the intensive care unit and stayed there for about three weeks. Gosh. And what's the first thing? How, how long were you in the induced coma? When did you when did they bring you around? So I was yeah, I was in the induced coma for, for three weeks. So I was yeah, I was in intensive care for more than that. To be honest, I don't remember at all anything about intensive care, like when I woke up or anything. I think it's quite a long time after when I woke up that I actually have any memory. Yeah, which does feel a bit strange. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, it must be sort of a, a very strange, strange situation to sort of yeah. l- lose that chunk of your life. And what do you remember about when you did sort of come round and, uh, and you were still in hospital? Um, I remember one of the things that I really vividly remember is um, I woke up and I was very much convinced that I was in Bristol, which is where I used to be at university. Um, so I just thought I was in Bristol. And bear in mind, I actually hadn't been in Bristol for about a year because I graduated the year before. So it was as if the last thing I remember was when I was there. So I'd kind of lost a massive chunk 
of my life almost, which was really strange. But yeah, obviously the staff had to do a lot of reassuring and talking to me about not exactly what had happened, but where I was and what was going on and stuff, because I was definitely very confused to start with. <laughs> Yeah. And obviously you had had a, a serious brain injury and you, you just touched on it there with you, with your memory. In what ways were, were you affected by that? Um, yeah, so obviously memory was a massive thing. Um, my walking was affected at first, but with physio that definitely got a lot better. Um, and other things like speech was affected to start with, but again that did get better so i was lucky lucky and the things a lot of the things that were affected were things that i was able to with therapy i was able to get better better at yeah so tell us a little more about your sort of recovery do you know how long you were in hospital in total i was in hospital for just under six months in total but that was two different hospitals so after osdoke i went to the haywood um, it was a specialist neuro rehabilitation ward called Broadfield Ward. Um, yeah, it was really good there. And, and you sort of said that it was memory and, and walking and speech that were affected. Presumably you had a lot of different rehab for those different areas. Tell us a little about the physio for sort of your, your physical um, recovery in terms of walking. What did that involve? Yeah, so physio to start with, I think they did a lot of just exercises in the bed with me to start with because I guess they supposedly they were doing physio with me right from the minute I was in like when I was in intensive care but obviously I don't remember any of that um but once I was able to they were able to get me up and stuff they were sort of working on my strength just standing up my balance um and then sort of learning to walk again yeah. And was it frustrating that, you know, something that you had previously done so naturally, like walking, you almost had to relearn? It was a little bit, yeah, especially I did have some difficulties with um, kind of my foot placement. I used to find that my feet would sort of turn over sometimes or they just wouldn't do what I wanted them to do. They kind of, I'd go to move one foot and the other one would move. So that was definitely frustrating at times, yeah. Yeah. And tell us a little about sort of the, the mental side of rehabilitation with, with memory and, and speech. How did that work? Yeah, that was definitely difficult with the memory, especially because I kind of, it was if I did, I remember, so my, my long-term memory was good. So my parents made me up like a bit, uh, sort of a, a photo album with pictures of things from my childhood and just also some more like recent things as well and I'd remember like where all the pictures were from things like that like so my long-term memory was normal really but it was just my short-term memory like I'd wake up and I wouldn't have a clue what day it was or um I often like would forget where I was um things like that were it was also frustrating, definitely. Hmm. And were there sort of exercises that, that were suggested for you to help with that short-term memory or was it something that just came back gradually over time? So we did like, um, with my occupational therapist, um, we had, it was, 
it was sort of like a, a mini task thing, but it was more just like a practice thing. Every day she'd ask me the same questions, simple questions like how old I was, where I at, where I was, etc. And she'd also show me some pictures that she'd asked me to remember certain ones and I'd have to point which ones they were. So doing that every day definitely did help a bit. So just practice really. Mm. And you said that your speech was affected to start with. Was that something that you also had to, to work on to get better again? Yeah, so I had a speech and language therapist. Yeah, so at the start when I moved to the ward from after I'd come out of um, intensive care, I didn't speak at all. Um, they tried so hard to get me to speak. Um, although they said, and I also kind of agree and think that the reason that I wasn't speaking was not all to do with the effect that my injury had had on my speech. I think I was also just very confused, like scared, because I was just in this place with loads of people that I didn't know. And so I just wasn't ready to speak in a way. It's because there was a few nurses, there was one particular, I think she was actually a physio, who um, had horses herself. And she used to come to my room and show me pictures of her horses. And supposedly I'd like always smile then. And I think I did speak to her once then, like quite early at the start. So yeah, so I don't think it was completely the problem. I definitely did struggle with my speech because of my injury, but also a bit of fear as well and confusion. And your accident was last June, is that right? Yeah, last June. Yeah, so it's sort of all this has happened during coronavirus. Did that yeah. sort of affect your yeah? Did that sort of affect your treatment in terms of whether your family could visit and that sort of thing? Yeah. So when I right at the start when it happened in intensive care, they were allowed to visit. Um, not it was they only visited about three times or something when I was in intensive care. It was just my mum was allowed to come in to me with all the PPE. She had to wear like so much um, stuff that she was given by the nurses to keep herself and all the patients in there safe, I suppose. But after I moved from intensive care, there was very strict policy on visitors. They, we just weren't allowed visitors on the ward, basically. It must have been a really lonely time for you. And I'm not surprised that, you know, you were obviously confused by what had happened. And I've heard, you know, of people previously with brain injuries where sort of seeing familiar people and speaking to them has helped them. And obviously that must have been, you know, quite limited for you with, with COVID. So it must, you must have been very lonely. Yeah, it was definitely difficult. Um, we used to do, me and my parents would uh, do really regular FaceTimes, which was definitely good to stay in contact via, via that. But obviously it's not the same as actually being able to see each other. And it must have been awful for your parents as well to, to have that happen to you and not to be able to visit and so on. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And you've, so you were sort of six months in the hospitals. When were you discharged and, and go home? So I was discharged on the 15th of December. So just before Christmas, which was good. <laughs> And how has your sort of rehabilitation continued since you've been at home? It's been really good. Um, 
most of the things I've been do doing really, it's just been doing things and myself really because they said that when I got this charge they were going to try and get me some phys outpatient physio um, but it's just so difficult with Covid at the moment to do that outpatient but to be honest it's actually been fine doing it just on my own just going for walks and doing that sort of doing little things like that has definitely helped a lot and how did you feel about horses after the accident did you want to get back to riding yeah the first thing when i when i sort of realized what had happened i wasn't at all scared of the thought of getting back to riding or anything like that i just i just wanted to get back to doing it and have you and have you been able to are you back riding yeah i am <laughs> so my parents <laughs> my parents were not um too keen on it at the start but they definitely they they didn't want me not to get back to it because they know that i love it so <laughs> <laughs> and so when did you first ride again i first rode it was about three weeks ago now i went back to the place i used to work at they've got a little pony there he's a little kind of gypsy cob he's really cute and such such a little superstar because he's just so chilled out <laughs> and um, I'd ridden them a lot before and I just walked around on him with somebody leading me because my balance was a little bit off at first so it was safer to do it that way but yeah it's definitely I'm definitely glad to be back doing it. And what about the horse that, that you were loaning who you had the accident with have you seen him since? I haven't sadly so his owner after my accident she was quite a nervous rider anyway but after I'd had my accident she decided that the best thing to do was to sell him to a new home um, because she was very nervous about riding him and she just thought that it wouldn't have been good for him because he'd be able to sense her nerves and it just wouldn't have worked well she thought so he's at a really lovely home now she went and um went and checked out the yard and everything before he went to make sure it was the right place and he's just loving life really i think from what i've heard <laughs> oh that's great sometimes it can be the right thing for a, for a horse to move yeah. on if it's not the right partnership but it's great to hear that that you're back riding and and enjoying that and um, and how do you feel sarah do you feel like your old self like you're gonna sort of get back to your old life yeah definitely i think i've recovered more than most people expected most of the doctors and my parents especially probably expected so yeah i'm just just taking things slowly not trying to rush into things but yeah i think i definitely will get back to how it was before Mm, that's really great to hear. And as we were saying earlier, since the accident, you've become a real campaigner for helmet safety, reminding riders always to wear a helmet and to ensure it's replaced after an accident. And your Instagram post sharing your old helmet after the accident has been liked thousands of times. And I know that you've upgraded your helmet to one with MIPS in the course of replacing it. We will be talking more about MIPS technology on the next podcast. But Sarah, since I started talking to Champion about this series, I've actually had a little think about my own hat and how many times I've fallen off in it. And I think I'm going to take your advice there. Nothing, nothing serious has happened to me, but I have fallen off a few times. So I'm, I'm yeah. going to be heading to the shops to get a new one. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us. And uh, I think it's, you know, very, very brave to be honest about sort of what's happened to you and the rehabilitation you've been through. And it really brings home to riders the importance of, of wearing helmets and those messages that you're putting across. And I know that Dr. Diane Fisher, who is a trauma consultant, who is part of the team who saved your life at the Royal Stoke, she said on a recent Facebook live chat that it's reassuring to know that her team did their job and, and your helmet did its job too. So uh, obviously it's not great at all what happened to you. It's awful, but it's it's good that the outcome has, has been as, as good as it is because of the combination of the protection you were wearing and the treatment you were able to receive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah. Ben, I'm going to bring you into the conversation now. And I, I know you're uh, at your desk, which is sort of next to the factory floor at Champion. So we can really hear the action going on in the background. And we're going to ask you to give us a bit more detail on the technology side of helmets. But let's start by finding out a bit more about you. You're a cyclist rather than a horse rider, Ben. Is that right? Yes. Um, I started riding bikes during my undergraduate degree um, and have sort of continued ever since and as Sarah touched on uh, it's not quite as dangerous perhaps as horse riding in terms of um, the potentials for accidents because a bike doesn't have a mind of its own but it's a similar sort of world in terms of vulnerability and the type of accidents you can get into. Yeah and tell us a little more about your education and professional background where did you study? So I studied at Cardiff University um, here in Wales coincidentally also where Champion is based and I completed a master's degree in mechanical engineering before then starting again at Cardiff a PhD program um, which I have recently completed and then as I came to the end of that program I then started working with the engineering team here at Champion so there's been a lot of academic training sort of is where my experience comes from. Um, part of the undergrad I did spend doing a year out in industry, uh, so I've got some industrial experience, but yeah, a lot of it is heavy academia, learning about how the materials and helmets work and how to best design them. Okay, that's interesting. Tell us about that year out in industry. Uh, so the year in industry was spent building diesel injectors for lorries, so it's a completely removed world, but it gave me a lot of experience and sort of how production works and how you manage those things, parts going and how the importance of making sure that all components are fitted together to make sure that every product that goes out the door is exactly as we'd want it to be so that it works as designed. So that's, although it's not directly applicable to what I do here at Champion, there's a lot of knowledge and skills that I learned during that year that helped and what I do now. Mm, and how long have you worked in helmet safety? So I'm coming up to five years combined with the PhD and my time here at Champion. So, And Ben, can you give us a bit of a basic rundown of what a riding helmet is made of? You know, we all uh, go out and put these things on our heads every day, but um, sort of in, in very broad brushstrokes, what's each bit designed to do? There's a lot of helmet components um, that affect the overall finish and how the helmet looks. So these are sort of things like ventilation gaps and the outer covering of the helmet. So whether that's been painted or it's got a suede cover or fabric covering. When it comes to rider safety, um, there are three principal and critical components of a helmet. And these are the helmet shell, the energy absorbing liner inside the helmet, and then the harness of the helmet. So the shell is often made of a hard plastic or a composite material so something like glass fiber 
and the shell's job is threefold. So firstly, it's there to prevent the helmet from being punctured by any sharp objects. So this could be something like falling on a piece of rock when out riding or anything around a yard that could then puncture the helmet and then the rider's head. Secondly, the shell is there to help provide crush resistance. So some of the most horrific accidents that we've seen are where people have been jumping with horses and the horses landed badly and then rolled over the top of the rider. So the shell helps prevent the weight of the horse and the force of that impact being transmitted to the head and is designed to resist that kind of weight. And then finally, the shell serves to disperse the force of any impact over a greater area. So the more the liner, the more the helmet that can be used, the more energy that gets absorbed and therefore the less energy that's put into the rider's head that can lead to injuries. Okay, so that's the shell. And then you also mentioned the energy absorbing liner. Tell us a bit more about that. So this is the most important aspect in terms of safety. So this is a piece of typically expanded polystyrene foam um, that sits inside the shell. Its size is defined by not only a rider's head, but also um, various standards. They tell you how far those lines need to come down to protect the top of the skull. And they're typically between two and three centimeters thick, um, depending on whichever helmet you're wearing. This foam is designed for single impact only. So it works once and then it's done and it won't take another hit. It's designed so that it crushes down under impact and therefore the force of crushing it takes all that, all the energy from when your head gets hit, crushes the foam liner and stops it going into the head. Um, so this is where a lot of the absorption and prevention of injury occurs in that element. So that uh, sort of brings the science side to what Sarah was saying about making sure you replace your helmet if you have a fall. Um, and the third sort of crucial component that you mentioned is the harness. Obviously important for, for making sure the helmet stays on your head, presumably. Yes, uh, that, that is its most vital function. So while the shell and the liner provide the most protection without the harness, the helmet would just fly off your head. It would be no use. So the harness is there to make sure that the shell and liner are sitting properly on your head, it's nice and comfortable on your head, and that when you do fall off or you get struck by something, the helmet won't move and won't twist out of the way and will do its job as designed. So to reiterate what Sarah mentioned, it's really important that riders make sure that their harness is comfortable, but also tight and well-fitting to the head. Okay, great. So I think we now all have a bit of a better understanding of what your helmet is actually made of. Ben, tell us a bit more about the testing of helmets. What what does that involve? How does it work? So all helmets for sale in the UK um, are required to meet a standard. So the te exact testing of each helmet will depend on which standards they meet, and I'll cover that in a bit. Predominantly, the biggest testing that helmets do is they're impact tested. So for every type of helmet that's out there in market, they will have, to, when during development of a helmet, when making a helmet, we'll put it on a standard size head form. Um, so these are metal head forms that are designed to mimic the size and shape of the human head. The helmet and head form are then dropped from a height, uh, which can be about almost up to two meters high, onto a steel surface, which we call an anvil. The head forms have a series of accelerometers in them, which record the forces that the head form experiences during a fall. 
and during the impact and there are limits set by standards on how high those accelerations can be and how long they can go on for. So each helmet will be tested on a variety of anvils um, which will go from mimicking the simplest being a flat steel surface to though but there are anvils that mimic horseshoes or poles and other hazards that you might experience while riding and these are all designed to test the helmet and make sure that when it's impacted it provides a good level of safety for the rider's head. In addition to that helmets are also tested for crush so they're loaded up to about a thousand newtons of force which is about somebody who weighs about 100 kilos standing on the helmet and it's got to be able to resist that without being crushed down into an area where it would damage the rider's head. And then again, the harness is also tested, so that we test the harness by making sure that under shocks and pulls, the helmet won't separate from the headphones, so that it will stay attached under even the most violent of shocks or accidents some riders can experience. Thank you for, for explaining all that to us. And you touched earlier on standards and, and, and different standards. I think, you know, we're all familiar with those sort of letters and acronyms and numbers, but uh, can you just give us a rundown of, of what the main standards are that people might come across and what they should be looking for? So... In the UK, there are two predominant standards. There is the VG1 and PASO15. Then internationally, there's also ASTM, which is the American Standards Agency, have a standard called F1163. And the Snell Foundation um, have a standard called E2016. So all these standards prescribe exact test methods and then also carry criteria in terms of how much acceleration the head form can undergo, what sort of forces they have to undergo, and they all differ by levels and severity. For the UK, uh, the PAS standards, so this is PAS 15, has the most stringent requirements. Um, so the helmets have to perform under a three impact average, they have to be conditioned to a wide range of temperatures, so from minus 20 degrees C to plus 50 degrees C, and still perform within these limits. And it's a more stringent standard than VG1. That's not to say that a VG1 helmet is unsafe. That's not at all true. It's just that the requirements to meet a pass standard are higher than a VG1 standard, but a VG1 helmet is still a safe helmet. Similarly, for the American standards, so the ASTM standard and the Snell standard, Snell is a higher requirement than ASTM. It is higher than pass in some areas, but lower than pass in the others. All our helmets are champion of pass. 15 level. Um, some of them also meet the Snell requirements. And presumably you sort of test those helmets at Champion during the process of, of design and so on, and then they are sent away and, and tested by those by those bodies that certify them as well. Yes. So we have an in-house lab at Champion. Um, so we do development testing there and we also test our helmets semi-regularly. We also carry a kite mark on all our helmets and to get the kite mark every time we make a new production run of helmets we have to send some out to the British Standards Institute BSI they then run those a, a selection of helmets against all the requirements of a test standard and we have to wait but those helmets have to pass that before we can then sell those helmets we've built so every time we make so Every week we are have helmets that are being tested by BSI, we get their results back, we look at their results and our results from our own lab, and with them being all okay, we can then move those helmets into to market and for them to be sold. So those are regularly checked. 
Snell do similar, um, except unlike with BSI where we send them the helmets, Snell will pick up helmets off the shelf at random and will test them and only let us know if one of our helmets has failed their testing. Oh, that's interesting that uh, they sort of sort of grab them off the shelf as such rather than being sent. And good to understand the difference there with the kite mark, that that's sort of about batch testing rather than sort of the helmet passing a standard at the beginning. That The kite mark is about making sure that each batch continues to meet that standard. Is that right that I've understood that correctly? Yes, that is right. So you can get kite marked to any standard. So by being kite marked past 15, it means every single helmet you produce meets that standard that is safe to that standard great thank you so much ben for explaining all of that to us today and thank you again to sarah for joining us sarah i think you've got a hashtag that you're using to promote helmet safety can you tell us what that is yes so it's helmets are replaceable heads are not well that's a great message and uh, thank you for telling us your story that is all we've got time for today but we'll be back with the second episode of the champion safety series at the start of june i think that on that occasion we're going to be talking about mips which is an acronym that stands for multi-directional impact protection system so we'll be diving down a bit further into the technology inside helmets and thank you to everybody for listening today goodbye